Well, you, you, yeah, I love you, Wayne. You get it. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. This is Nick Bakai, and you are listening to the Wayne Holtz Podcast. Hey, Waniacs. Ten-year-old me cast a spell, and today, I finally got my witch's license. One of the purposes of the Wayne Holtz Podcast is to interview people that have brought joy and motivation to my life and that I believe can do the same for you. This one takes the cake. You will instantly recognize the voice of today's guest because of the seven seasons he spent playing Salem Saberhagen on Sabrina the Teenage Witch the most famous black cat in media, along with Luna from Sailor Moon. But his career did not start or stop there. From getting his writing chops contributing to National Lampoon to executive producing some of the biggest shows in the game, like Mom, starring Anna Ferris and Allison Janney, and Big Bang Theory spinoff Young Sheldon, to now wrapping his first season of the upcoming series, How to Be a Bookie, that he co-wrote with Chuck Lorre. This guy has a lot to talk about, so let's start talking. Welcome, Nick Bakai. Hello. Hey, Wayne. Pleasure to be here. So I like to start the conversation off by asking, where are you in the world and what is your environment right now? I'm in uh, West Hollywood, California, in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, my environment, (laughs) it's nice. By California standards, it's chilly at low, mid-60s. But I'm from Buffalo, New York, so it's, you know, glorious summer to me. And, um, you know, I'm I'm, uh, sitting here twiddling my thumbs for the first time in a long time because as a, a member of the Writers Guild of America, I'm on strike. And so can you explain to the audience, in case they're not aware, what is going on right now? What is the strike about, and why are you twiddling your thumbs? Well, you know, um, it's the first time I, I, you know, I've I've been very lucky. Um, I've been working solid straight through for over 30 years as a member of the Guild, so I've had a good career. And during that career, um, I've been the beneficiary of the kind of things that writers are on strike for right now. Um, I've done a lot of my career uh, doing network TV shows by the old sort of classic model where you do 22 episodes or more a season in a robust room of writers with, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 staff members of different levels of experience and everything else. Um, with you know a solid job that fills your year, um, pays you a good wage, and also uh, gives you residuals uh, on the episodes that you've written, so that you know as I sit here, I still get paid for episodes I wrote for Sabrina, for King of Queens, for you name it, right? Um, and that has been the model forever, and you know it, it is. You know, not only, you know, as, as luxurious as that sounds, 
the model was built to sustain writers during those inevitable lulls and scary fallow times. Um, you know, look, if you get to the point where you're writing in a TV show environment, you're in an elite situation. Uh, you shouldn't be hand to mouth or week to week. That's my belief. Um, you know, so, but it's really, it's a living wage that's being fought for because in the advent of streaming, all those, all those things have gone away. Um, you know, you just think about your own viewing habits, even shows that I love. Look, I just did a show, How to Be a Bookie, that's going to be on Max. Uh, the new the HBO current. Max, everyone, which yeah, I just yeah. learned today. That's yeah. the new HBO Max. Okay. Yes, as of, I think, yesterday, the name has changed. We'll see what it is when the show premieres, which we don't know when that is yet. At any rate, you know, um, that's eight episodes. And listen, the, one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. But as opposed to the standard network 22 or whatever, that's eight. And there's no residual life for this show. Um, and this is what a lot of writers are up against. Also, rooms are smaller. They're, they're, as much as there's been an explosion in TV and in the quality of TV, the streaming model exists outside the, 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 the things that have been hard fought for and negotiated. Is and it kind of like been, the wild, wild west? I'm sorry to interrupt, but is it? No, please jump in. Yeah, it, that's a good analogy. It is. It's a new frontier. Terms have not been established. And if you don't establish them, you can't get that genie back in the bottle, Wayne. So, um, you know, now is the time. And there's been no budge on the um, producer side. So a strike was inevitable. Well, I am so happy that y'all are taking that stand before things get out of hand. And, you know, uh, I know that that's been a question and an issue for a hot fucking minute. And <laughs> I think it's time for people to understand not only the business side of things. When we're streaming, I am a consumer. and But for also the people as yourself who are working behind the scenes to stand up for themselves. And, and also the people up top to uh, hear and understands that we that you are there and that you have a purpose and you're not just there to let them take y your magic you know and not get paid for it we get it we have to be paid for our art right mr nick yeah you're right and also you know it's it's honestly you know i'm in a situation now where i benefited from things that writers generations ahead of me fought for and i look at the young writers i work with now who are starting out and they're looking at a vastly different and inferior playing field just mm. to build lives, just to build lives. You know, just to, to, you know, I mean, look, I know everyone goes into the art for the love of the game, but, you know, th these are careers. And at a certain point, if you reach the point where you're a part of the high commerce end of that game, which TV is, um, you know, we're not in a loft painting. Um, and big money is being made, you know, the creator should have a piece of the pie. And that's what this is about. 100%. And I know that, you know, as TV has progressed and media and movies and everything has progressed, you know, the pay for everyone in your industry, I feel the ones uh, actually making the content and not just distributing it has gone down and down and down. And I feel like the, the streaming world, like, really hit, you know, that knuckle right on the head and was kind of the, yeah, the last to, point. I have, I have to say also, I know we want to move on to more fun things, but also, you know, look, I, I, I grew up 
you know, in a town like Buffalo, growing up in there in the 60s and 70s, it was a union town as much as America was. And, you know, we're in an era where unions have gotten smeared and have gotten a bad name, which I don't really understand because what they were about, I, I understand some of it, but it was about the working man having a good, decent life. And that's what this isn't, you know, what's happened is the media companies turned into these stock traded super conglomerate corporate mentalities where the, 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 the people that are high up on the corporate chain get a lot of money, but it's all about creating right to work and gig economy and just grinding everyone under a certain level and taking every penny that's possible. So, you know, th this is the kind of battlefront that I think is going on in many, many fields. I have yes. no Anyway, enough. enough. No. Thanks. And listen, <laughs> uh, we're not here to just have fun, sir. We're here to educate and uh, and learn. And that battle is going on 100%, just like you said, in many different fronts. And I appreciate those words. So we're talking about the writer's strike. We're talking about the strike that's happening in the industry right now. And, you know, you definitely had a career long before this. But one of the first times where you were simultaneously writing and acting was Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Did you watch that original um, TV whatever movie with Ryan Reynolds and Melissa Joan Hart before you took the gig? <laughs> wow, I forgot Ryan Reynolds was in that. He wow. was Harvey. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, wow, imagine how different his life would have turned out. <laughs> Come on, Barbie movie. <laughs> Coming oh out in July. God. Wow. Um yeah, no, I, you know, I think I did. You know, it's a strange, the roots of the TV series that I was a part of were unusual because the show never did a traditional TV pilot. It was sold off of that movie, but as a half-hour comedy and radically changed. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I got hired to write on the show before I was hired to be the voice of Salem. Um, because there was no pilot. While we were writing the series, we were also casting. Um, and at that point, I was already, I'd done a lot of voice work and I was already doing Norbert on the Angry Beavers. And, you know, thank God it all worked out. But um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think at some point I did watch it in the early going, but what we did deviated so much other mm. than Melissa. Um, you know, it really was apples to oranges. Did you ever consider having a British accent like the original Salem movie? <laughs> you know, um, I think at that point I had realized in the voiceover world, like most acting professionally, the market will will dissuade you of any uh, delusions about what you are. It will tell you, no, this is what you are. Hmm. And what I realized was I am not ever going to be Billy West. I'm not a man of a thousand voices. Uh, my bread and butter, whether it was cartoons or whether it was when I would do commercial voiceovers, was always kind of a snide, wise-ass voice. So I stuck with the girl that brung me, you know, and it worked. I have nine thoughts, and I'm trying to figure out where to go from there. Because <laughs> because I will say, I'm going to jump to this uh, in a moment. We're not going to get there yet. But I remember the first time I actually saw you on camera and heard your voice. You have the kind of voice where you use the voice. You know what I mean? And so um, 
that's interesting. And so one one thing I love about the the difference between the the original Sabrina film, which is of course not the original for everyone listening, Sabrina the Teenage Witch is an Archie comics spinoff mm-hmm. um, that ended up uh, turning into a phenomenon, and they uh, moved it into a television show and a movie, et cetera, et cetera. And so from going to the film to the actual movie, I love that we decided comedy was the main factor. And what I really, really loved was that the humor of Sabrina was not afraid to be intelligent. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I encountered that. That was really courtesy of the writers in charge and, you know, the decision makers. You know, it, it, it was at that point in my career, I, it was time for me to take a real job because I had done so many things that were so far afield of writing for a TGIF show that when I took that gig, because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, my whole career before that was nothing but late night, edgy, completely deviant stuff. And then it was it was finally time to sort of be a grown up and pay the rent. So I bit the bullet and I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pay the rent, but this is kind of the death of me. And I was, you know, it just goes to show how wrong you can be. It turns out that the room was full of really wonderful, smart writers. It was my first time writing uh, half-hour comedies as opposed to sketch and edgy late-night stuff. So I had a lot to learn. And, you know, the people who were there, uh, who were the experienced writers, were fortunately great veterans who knew a lot about the game and were who created a show that was way smarter than it needed to be. And I learned a lot and I got a lot of game out of that last thing I expected. It was a, it was a, a boon to me. I mean, honestly, it was a cult classic. And I remember like it was yesterday, all of the different moments in Sabrina's life, your life as the show transitioned, it really was a magical show in my opinion. And, uh, really, nice. and really well done. And uh, I have to ask, though, like, did you experience anything or have any thoughts or or memories of the transition from TGI Fridays? Thanks, thank God it's Fridays, if everyone remembers, with, like, Clueless and, <laughs> and Urkel and Boy Meets World. Yeah. Sabrina was right there in the mix. Did, yeah. did you feel any difference? Um, or can you talk about the difference for yourself when you transitioned from there to being on the WB, which was, like, the hit teen channel at the time? It was a big change for me on a lot of fronts because it also was concurrent with when I left the show as a writer and I moved over to writing on King of Queens. So for the first time, I guess the first four seasons of Sabrina, I was there writing every day. And, you know, I would go down and do the scenes live on stage when we were shot because, you know, we didn't do that in front of an audience. It was sort of in the single cam metabolism so we hey, shot ask, long i'm gonna interrupt days. you i'm sorry sure. were you sure. were you on set when you were when i know you probably recorded the lines offset but were you on set like saying those no, things I was, I was there live for the first four years and we had a phalanx of brilliant puppeteers uh and and we became a really interesting kind of cohesive crew uh so we were live so there's, there's a lot of breath and reality in those scenes that wouldn't have been there. Well, the reality is the last three WB years, I wasn't there. Um, I was off writing on King Queens and I would come in and Tom Fountain, who was the head of the puppeteer squad, 
um, and who had controlled the mouth and was sort of like my accompanist, <laughs> you know, you know, at the piano, he would lay down the scratch track and then I would loop that every Friday morning. I'd go over to Warner, uh, what was it, Paramount and go in really early. And we had a little Friday morning club in a, in a, a sound bay and we'd loop the whole episode. So um, it really changed dramatically for me, just in terms of the whole thing. I wasn't, I was not creating the rhythm of the performance. I was just, I was doing what everybody probably assumed I was doing the whole time, but it was different. Plus I also, to be honest with you, um, I found the last three years and, you know, I, and this will sound like glitch cause I wasn't there, but it wasn't, it was just, I, I thought the writing really took a, a drop off the deep end. Um, I thought they were, you know, made mistakes with a lot of things. I, I'm glad it was there. I was grateful to be working. Don't get me wrong, but you know, and I will say, <laughs> you know, I felt like the last three seasons, you know, they, they missed the boat with the cat. Cause it felt like every time I go in and loop it, the cat was just sort of basically being shot out of a cannon. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was like, you guys, you fucking idiots. You've got the, you know, you got a, a, a show where, you know, puppets and animals can get away with murder no matter what the confines of the show you're working on is. And I know that because I spent four years and the, the cat was the anarchic get out of jail free card when you're writing on TGIF. <laughs> and they just kind of blew it and made the cat a buffoon. Now that may have been also when I left, there were the simmering resentments of a puppet being the second banana star of the show. Mm. Who knows? Who knows where the directives came okay. from? I wasn't there. But, well, you know, because um, I will you... say, look, you've got the wittiest, smartest character on the show being shot out of cannons. Swing and a miss, you idiots. You because know? when I think about those later seasons, which for Serena fans, of course, we all know that once she leaves high school, that's when the divide happens uh, on the series. But when you mentioned, I literally thought of Salem before you said the cannon, just like being thrown out of a <laughs> right. window, like the front yeah, window exactly. in the kitchen it's or something. Like, and... Oh, man. So, yeah, no, I, I would go in and listen. I was grateful to be working and that I will lead most gigs. I've had good ones and weird ones. I've never said I'm. I don't want to work here. You know, I've done them all, pal. But you know that I would watch what they were churning out week after week and go, wow. You know, um, I think we're. You know, I think this show's just riding on the momentum of the people who love it because that was pretty shitty stuff. Because I really felt that in the beginning years, and even rewatching it as much as I do, I feel like there was a a, a sophistication. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And I, I felt like it was really, really, like mm. I said, intelligent writing and quiet. It was a quiet show. Quiet, yeah. but but strong. And, uh, of course, the later years were different. I mean, we and we love the uh, the people that came in, everyone from Sailing Moon Fry to Trevor Lasore, who I've interviewed before, everyone that's listening, go yeah. listen to that episode. But, um, like, it was definitely a different show, um, and so I totally hear you. And I, well, you, you, yeah, I love you, Wayne. You get it. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. And uh, what I'm also here you for... Get it is uh, getting into what happened after that and where you got a little more control of the situation, which we'll talk about right after this break. This episode is sponsored by Sheath Underwear. Comfortability holds the crown when you're running around town and Sheath Underwear always helps me hold it down. 
Whether I'm chilling at home or grabbing a mic for the road, Sheath always has me covered below. From their breathable materials and custom designs to making sure I look good in front or behind, Sheath is my kind of underwear. They have everyone covered, by the way, and so do I. So use promo code WANIAC at sheathunderwear.com for 20% off of your order. That's S-H-E-A-T-H underwear.com. Hey, Weeniacs, we're here with Nick Mackay, I mean, from voice actor to producer to executive producer, and we're about to talk about King of Queens, who you were, which you were writing and producing on, and, but I would like you to describe to the audience, can you talk about what a producer does, what an executive producer does, and what's the difference? Uh, it's a good question. You know, I mean, producer, as you rise through the ranks on TV shows, it's really just sort of a promotional title where that's how you get a better credit and a better paycheck until you get into the executive producer tier. And then um, even in that case, it depends because you'll see executive producers credits for people who are like, you know, the manager of the star of the show. So Christian all produ producer credits are a gumbo. It can mean a million things, but um, in theory, the idea, and this is another thing that's kind of what the writer's strike is about. I'm not going to go back there, I promise. Wayne, but, um, <laughs> you, you get trained along the way and you learn how to not just write these shows, which takes time, but how to produce them, which is uh, in TV, the executive producer showrunner is where all the bucks stop. You have to be the decider of everything from how to handle the notes from the network and the studio to how to get what the show needs from each department, how the sets look, wardrobe. Uh, you got to manage the cast. You got to manage the directors. You are also doing all the, you're supervising the editing and the post-production and the mix and everything. So, you, you know, what goes on the air, the last person in, in, involved with approval is the showrunner, executive producer. So your producer, as you rise, you go from these different credits with producer attached to them. Um, you're hopefully learning along the way. Um, and you're learning and observing and getting little at bats in these different categories so that when you do get your own show on the air, you know what you're doing and you know where you, you, you've been trained so that it's not a mess because it, you gotta learn every one of those steps the hard way. Um, so it takes, you know, I'm sure there are some wonderkins who are born to it, but they're rare. It's just like anything else. It takes time to be a head coach. So you were like the assistant coach on King of Queens. Is that a good analogy? Oh, yeah. I was, I was, you know, I was, honestly, my, my title for the entire run of that show was consulting producer. <laughs> See, there are a thousand ways to slice that cake. I love that. Um, and that meant I did not work five days a week. Um, but I was very involved and, uh, you know, I had, I had a wonderful time writing on that show. Um, but that was the, the deal I sliced because at that time I was doing a lot of other stuff. I was very involved on camera and doing my own stuff for ESPN and I was writing features and other things. So 
um, I wanted to carve out time for the other stuff I was up to, and that worked out there. Um, so, um, you know, that, that, that's how that producer title came about. Well, the, for the time you put in there, I will say, you know, King of Queens, I mean, we can start with the intro song, okay? I mean, the sign of a good show <laughs> is a good intro. And that <laughs> damn song, I mean, I grew up without cable, right? So at one in the morning, when I heard that low sax come in <laughs> and I saw Kevin rolling around with Leah Remini, I was just like, okay, it's time. I'm waking up for an hour. I'll be at school in the morning, but I'm going to enjoy my King of Queens time. <laughs> and it w it really was that comfort show with genuine, genuine humor, and uh, which I will say is something that is very consistent upon all of your work. And um, you were working with so many great people. And I, I listened to you say how working with people like Kevin James, Lee Remini, Jerry Stiller, when they have that kind of talent and innate humor, you kind of just get to sometimes sit back and just watch them work. How was it like working with those kind of people and uh, just observing their talent while working oh, on your own talent? It, it was fantastic. You know, I mean, that that trio in particular, that entire cast, they were a joy. Yes. Um, you know, Kevin is a force of nature comedically, and I didn't know him at all when I came aboard there. And by the end of the time working there, I had forged a really great creative relationship with him. And we went on to do, I wrote the mall cop movies with him and zookeeper. And we had a really great feature film chapter as well. So I have uh, a deep, great creative connection there. Um, and he makes me laugh like nobody else. So um, really special thing came out of that for me. And and, you know, he's a guy that I love. Um, and and Leah, I mean, I love them both. All Leah was wonderful. She's so phenomenal in that form in particular. Mm -hmm. And the thing I loved about her was, you know, there's a lot of pullback sometimes from actors saying, "Oh, I don't want to do that. People will hate my character." Not a drop of that from Leah. She okay. would lean into, it. and that's what made Carrie so good. And when she and Kevin were on fire, it was, you know, I, to this day. I've never had that much fun writing and watching those guys knock those couple fight scenes out of the park. And Jerry Stiller was, to know him was to love him. He was, not only was he just wildly, unpredictably brilliant and a joy, but he was the nicest human being you'll ever meet. And he was a, a grateful, appreciative person. And I, I just, I, I loved every minute of him. So uh, uh, my King Queens years were, and the writing staff was, you know, I have friends to this day for life from that staff. It was a beautiful experience. So to speak to, uh, to two of those things quickly, um, you know, I totally feel you on the Lee Remini, um, balls to the wall, ready to go, because um, my favorite, one of my favorite <laughs> things in the world is Dancing with the Stars, which she competed in, and she was so willing and ready and <laughs> and open to the experience and and also, like, open to having a good time. I feel yeah. that. And also, Jerry Stiller um, was in my favorite movie, or tied for my favorite movie of all time. He was in Hairspray. And, of course, that wasn't my <laughs> only right. experience That's with right. him. But, like, he did such oh. a good job. And it was beautiful. Oh, yeah. and, I forgot um, he was in that. 
cheers to him. Cheers to Jerry. For everyone listening, um, the drinking word today is Jerry. And so um, drink responsibly. <laughs> Don't drive if you're listening. And uh, take a sip for Jerry. And I mean, uh, King of Queens is like what... And you popped up over the years with so many things. I mean, like, let's do quickly um, fucking... I know it wasn't a huge part, but I will never forget you slabbing that shit meat in Not Another Teen Movie on the cafeteria tray, okay? Oh, my God. You know what's so funny about that, Wayne? That's not me. That's just your I voice. I am credited with that. It's not. It's not. I think it's... Um... Yeah, it's weird. I think is that on my IMDb? It I think was. It's Rick, and I, was gonna, I think it's I was gonna, Rick oh Dukeman. I think it's Rick Dukeman, who is a great stand-up and who I think passed away. But it's always been on there, and I've been like, wait a minute, I'm not in that. Okay, I'll be honest. I, mean, I didn't look, rewatch. I, I, I'm old and I drank heavily, so could I have blacked out? An entire project, and I tell you, brother, I don't think that's me. Okay, so we're cutting <laughs> that. You know what? Okay. I should have run with it. <laughs> you know what? No, to, listen, keep me in oh, check. You keep that in. That's this is you're clarifying a long held mystery that no one else cares about. Okay, IMDb, <laughs> Wikipedia, whoever has that listed, take note. Okay, take note. And uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, okay, but you were on that 70s show. And with yes, Ashton Kutcher, yes. and that, that was me. that was one of the first moments where I saw you in the flesh, and <laughs> I was like, I know that motherfucker, I know that voice. Like, what's going on here? Okay, and like just hopping on like another cult classic. Like, how was that little time on the show? Well, that was a real blast because uh, Mark Brazil, one of the creators of that show is uh, somebody I love and an old friend of mine and a fellow Buffalonian. And uh, so it was just a blast. And I had so much fun that week. I cannot tell you. And Ashton was a blast. And that part was so nuts. Um, but it was a stone cold blast. And, you know, I actually did a couple of other episodes. I was the voice of um, one of the characters' diaries. And uh, I think I did. And they also did one where there was a parody of that old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer animation. I think I did a voice in that, too. But those were off camera. Um, but, yeah, no, listen, I would go help Mark out once in a while. And uh, it was just a blast. Because when you get to work with people who you love and, and see them succeeding, it's the best thing in the world. I mean, the iconic tree continues, okay? And we're <laughs> going to continue with the iconic tree of our guest today, Nick Bakai, right after this break. Hey Texans, if you're in San Antonio on Tuesday, June 6th, I already have your plans. Local powerhouse comedian Tori Poole is hitting the Texas public radio stage for Creekside Sessions, an evening of comedy and conversation with herself, Raul Sanchez, and from Comedy Central and HBO, Vanessa Gonzalez. Can't find your funny bone? Tori Poole is the one for the job. Visit tpr.org or torypool.com to get your tickets now. Okay, so we've been talking about comedy this whole time, right? And, uh, yeah. I mean, when it comes to sitcoms, when it comes to success, when it comes to actual humor, real writing, real stories, it does not really get better than Mom. I mean, how was it reuniting with your former Kenyan College alum... <laughs> Allison Janney 
for mom? Oh, it was bizarre and fantastic. Um, that, that, you know, listen, that was uh, one of the best experiences I ever had. You know, that show was nothing but a joy. Um, I got to work on something um, that, I, honestly, Wayne, I think it's the first thing I ever did in my life that actually I, I had a blast doing, but also, like, actually was well-received. A lot of my work has been like, yeah, good for him, but yikes, you know, and that one, that one went over big and that was refreshing <laughs> after all these years, but it was incredible. And, you know, yeah, Allison and I were in like college plays together and, you know, I had nothing but the utmost affection and respect for her, but, you know, our paths really didn't cross after that. And then here we were and she was, you know, and, and boy, I'll tell you, even in college, I, it, it's just like watching, you know, I know from the world of sports, there are those kids you look at and go, that one's playing in the NFL. That was Allison. She was just in a different league. Um, and, um, you know, boy, was that true. A billion Emmys and an Oscar later. But she and, you know, she's also the nicest person and set the tone on our set in a way that was priceless as a showrunner, because, you know, the, that can make your life gold and it can make your life hell. And it was gold. Um, and then, you know, the, to, to write a show, and this is true for our whole cast. Um, you know, we could write that show and turn a scene on a dime. It could be balls out funny and a scene could go right into the heaviest stuff in the world. And we had the horses who could do that. You know, they could stop on a dime and give you five cents change anywhere you wanted to go. So to be able to have that freedom as writers, oh my gosh. So, and, and I'll tell you too, that writing staff was murderers row. Uh, to this day, I, I miss every single person on that staff. And I, I, honestly, it was just a highlight of my creative life. Uh, and it was a joy to go to work every day. Well, it was comedy with a purpose, you know, and um, I love something that will make me laugh and also make me cry. You know, that's right. Yeah. That's right in my my wheelhouse. And uh, mom really hit those. I mean, and you speak on people that are, are ready to go. Um, the writers are ready to go. And also, I mean, the actors you're working with from Allison Janney to Anna Ferris. Come on. Jamie yeah. Presley, like they know yeah. what to do and they know oh how God. to to give right? it to you. Oh, I know. No, it, they really do. It was just a clinic every day. And, you know, I have to say, too, you know, um, you know, that really was even though I kind of came into his world briefly working on Two and a Half Men, that was really my introduction to working with Chuck Lorre. And that was, you know, not only a game changer for my life, but uh, process wise, too. Uh, that was when I realized, oh, there's a way to write these shows balls out funny, but they can actually be about something more. And that unlocked a, another level in me as a writer. Um, I think previous to that, I'd always been an MVP for making your show funny, mm. but when it was story time, I kind of disconnected like I used to in math class because I just, I don't know if I had the wherewithal to spend five hours thinking about, you know, an episode all about a bad wedding gift. I would just kind of go brain dead, you know, and that's so much of classic sitcomery is, is that kind of, you know, let's get five clever twists. And, uh, um, 
And all of a sudden, I found myself swimming in a different pool where you could write about what actually would happen next and what's real and what are people feeling and make it balls out funny. And it, uh, boy, did I take to that. So um, there was a lot of uh, incredible, not that I was a spring chicken, but I got some great mentoring from Chuck. And you mentioned Chuck Lorre, who, uh, for people that don't know, helped bring to life such shows as Mom, Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, Sybil. Yes, let's go back to Sybil. Okay. <laughs> and uh, y'all are about to start on a whole new journey, which actually you just wrapped starting because uh, you yeah. co-wrote How to Be a Bookie with Chuck. Tell me about the show. What's going on? What's the situation? Uh, we did. We just wrapped it, and boy, we had a blast. Uh, it stars Sebastian Maniscalco and Omar Dorsey, and it's uh, something we just cooked up. Um, very different. Um, I helped a little bit, but you know, Chuck did a pretty brilliant single cam show for Netflix called The Kaminsky Method, and this is a little bit like that. It's an eight-episode single cam about a, a bookie working in LA, taking bets and just trying to live his life. And uh, a, a, a team, he and Omar, a team of bookies and, and their lives are complicated and their work is complicated. And we shot all over Los Angeles, very location heavy, contemporary. And uh, oh my God, we had the time of our lives. And we, you know, for us, we got to really deviate from, you know, years and years of, you know, starting every episode in a living room with a couch. This was very different. This had a lot of action and a lot of darkness. And, and mm. we, and I tell you, again, a dream cast top to bottom. We got um, an incredible performance out of everyone. And um, oh, man, we had a blast. And we, we, uh, we don't know when it's going to be on, but it'll be on Max. It'll be on Max, y'all. Hopefully, yeah. if you're already paying for HBO Max, you will also get Max. But I don't know. I don't know how that shit works. So. I, I think that's exactly. <laughs> I, I, it, you know, and maybe Discovery. I don't really know. Well, oh, you know yeah. but listen, get it for get it for Bookie, if nothing else. I'm telling you. I love that. <laughs> okay, make sure you're keeping an eye out for How to Be a Bookie. And uh, speaking of bookings, my this is the, our last round. So what I like to do at the end is, if you don't mind, I'm going to name off a few people. And I'd love if you could just uh, say a word that comes to your mind when you think of them or a cute story, okay? Sure. Let's do it. I have to start with the queen herself, Melissa Joan Hart. <laughs> uh, the first thing that comes to mind is... I don't. I know no other child actor who grew up to be such a wonderful, healthy human being, and I adore her. Hmm. I love that. What about my original childhood crush, who played Harvey Kinkle, Nate Richard? <laughs> He's the sweetest guy in the world. Uh, you would not be disappointed if you met him. Hmm. What about the queen of comedy herself, Anna Faris? Oh, I love Anna, and I also, uh, you know. Allison got a lot of the bells and whistles for mom, but you know, the show doesn't exist without the kind of empathy that Anna's character, Christy, the nucleus of the show was that you just care about Anna and you cared about her character and it allowed everything that ensued. And I love her. I have to squeeze this one in because we haven't mentioned her or talked about her yet, but she played Zelda on Sabrina, Beth Broderick. 
Uh, I love Beth. I really do. I adore her. She's a wise soul and a beautiful, beautiful woman. It was a limited moment, but Ashton Kutcher. Oh, you know, it's funny. I encountered him as a as a young guy, you know, on that 70s show, and he was an absolute delight and almost felt like a Labrador retriever at that point. And then uh, I spent most of a season on two and a half men when he was there and you know he had become this master of the universe you know investor as well as still just you know incredibly good comedic actor fantastic in the form and again still what great attitude and energy well nothing but good things to say about that guy uh, your former roommate and Patrick from SpongeBob the SquarePants, <laughs> Bill Fagerbachy. Bill Fagerbachy and I both Thank know you. where each other's bodies are buried. Um, we went to grad school together at SMU in Dallas back in a million trillion years ago. And we've been through so many wars together. He's the only person offhand I can think of who made it to all of my weddings. Um, and, and, and he is truly like a brother to me um i love him dearly and also uh, another brief moment but i mean you were a, a seinfeld you know presence okay we have to ask about elaine julia louis dreyfus <laughs> well when my wife and i first got together she said you know i've never dated an actor i don't know how i'll be able to handle it when you have to kiss somebody and i said you're fantastic um, you need to trust me on this one. They don't hire me to kiss girls. Um, and then I got that part. <laughs> and so I came home and I said, well, there's good news and bad news. I got, I'm working, but I got to kiss Elaine. Um, that, it was an incredible week to be a part of that show. Feels like, you know, what it would be like to sort of be on like something like Mary Tyler Moore show or the honeymooners. I feel like, It'll be on forever, and it's part of history. And I, I, it was a joy. And we have one more, because I, I just saw her um, for the first time do stand-up, and I love a comedian who doesn't give a fuck. Caroline <laughs> Ray. Oh, Caroline is brilliantly funny. Um, she is, uh, you know, I mean, she, it's the idea of, Zelda without her as Hilda is inconceivable, right? Mm. Um, you know, I just, you know, it's funny. I'm going to see her and Beth and the whole gang in Tampa. There's some 90s convention, and I, I couldn't make this one a few months ago. I was shooting Bookie, but I think I'm going to do the one in Tampa. And we had one of the reunions at the Stan Lee convention, the con in LA. And it, man, it was great seeing everybody. And Caroline and I sat next to each other. And we had a blast. So, um, you know, it's like it's family. And, you know, the thing that's amazing is we can't believe how long ago it was. So, mm. you know how that works. I sure do. Wow. What a lineup. What a life. I have one last question How are the bills looking? <laughs> Hey, man, they look good, right? I have been through so many ups and downs. Um, and, you know, the fact that they're exciting, thank you. That's all I ask. Because I've been through some dull-ass years. 
and I know the difference. And I'll take exciting. You know, I'm sure I want them to win a Super Bowl. I think they could, but I'll take exciting. Right, Wayne? Sure. Well, today has been exciting, and I thank you so much for being here, Mr. Nick. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun, Wayne. I also thank everyone for listening. And listen, you are hearing the voice of a legend. And if you want to hear that voice on your phone, I know there are a lot of Sabrina fans out there and a lot of Salem fans. Make sure you book Nick Bakai on Cameo. Cameo.com slash Nick Bakai. That's spelled B-A-K-A-Y. Why, bitch? Because he's worth it. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Wayne Holtz Podcast. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. When it comes to looks and smarts, I'll give you five out of five kisses. This episode was produced and engineered by Nick Shan. I wish that I can be a missus. Let me rise to the occasion. I'll photo you at the radio station in my head.